Hello and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists. I'm Lily Cantor. And I'm Emma Wilkinson. This series is a little bit different as we're going to speak to the winners of our Freelance Journalism Awards. Yes, we're really excited to chat to all our winners in more detail about their freelance careers and their award-winning journalism. Yeah, definitely. We are going to introduce our first guests in a minute, but first of all, we're going to do our freelance highlight of the week as usual. So Emma, what's yours? Yeah, so earlier this week, I got out from behind my desk and I went to London to give a talk on freelancing at a summer school um and it it was really nice actually and it really reminded me how sometimes you just need to get away from the regular routine and away from your desk um and I ended up having to do a load of work while I was there actually but that change of scene just made it feel not like (laughs) the usual kind of grind of just get everything done and there were lots of keen uh young they were scientists actually who wanted to get into science communication he came and asked me lots of questions about freelancing so yeah it was a really nice change of scene I'm glad I did it uh Lily what's yours well I don't know if I've mentioned uh but recently I went to Tanzania so I had a a nice change of scene there um I went to do a big race a 250 kilometer race so it was uh, quite hard work um But yeah, it was really nice again to get away. I wasn't working as it were whilst I was there, although I was taking notes um, and I did uh, write up a a review for a magazine when I got back. But what was particularly nice was um, just earlier this week, actually, I got a random email from an editor who just remembered that I'd been on this trip and that I was back. And he just dropped me an email to ask me sort of, how did you get on? And, and and it was just about that. It was nothing to do with work. And I just thought that was just really sweet that he remembered and he bothered to email me to ask to ask about it. Um, That's good. I mean, it is because we're all like absolutely wanting to know why on earth <laughs> you did it, why you thought this was a nice rest <laughs> from work. Everyone's just like, I'm going to have to have to ask her about this. It's madness. Yeah. Well, you know, but it is nice to feel like people are paying attention to what you're up to. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely, definitely nice. Okay, so it's time to introduce our guest. Today we have with us Anna Lawler, who who won our Best Broadcast Journalist category. This award was sponsored by Women in Journalism, and it was for a freelance journalist working in radio, TV, podcasting or online. Anna won for her radio documentary, Typical. Um, Anna had actually spent 20 years in newspaper journalism before moving to broadcast, and Typical was her first radio documentary. It delves into the surprising untold stories hiding in everyday statistics and how our assumptions about the typical lead us astray. Yes, it's great. Listen, and congratulations, Anna, on your win. Great Thank to have you. you Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So our judges really love this documentary. Um, some kind words they said were that it was funny, intriguing and relatable. So we've got lots of questions about how you put that documentary together. But we thought just to start with, perhaps you mm-hmm. can tell us a little bit about how you became a freelance journalist. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I've been a journalist, as you say, for over 20 years, which rather dates me. Um, but uh, I started young. Uh, and when I was doing NCTJ um, qualification, I think around then I had this sort of dawning realization that I suddenly was a journalist. I didn't even have to wait till I've uh, got my T-line shorthand and all that sort of thing. And just went out and printed a uh, um, a business card, you know, very old fashioned type thing where you go down the post office or whatever and print them off um, and just decided that I was a journalist from that day forth and that I could get as much experience as possible uh, by th freelancing alongside doing that qualification. Um, and so I kind of never looked back. And as soon as I did qualify, I went into working for Sunday Times, which was amazing opportunity to get onto their internship program. Um, I'm a non or at the time I was a non-graduate, so there were very few opportunities to get onto a scheme, especially with a national. Um, so I was very grateful to be one of three on uh, the Sunday Times. But even alongside that, I was still freelancing for snowboarding magazines um, and and sports magazines. And to be honest, I think there was a bit of a tie for which paid me more. Um, so I, I kind of never stopped and have always done freelancing alongside uh, longer term contract or staff jobs. Fantastic. And I think I think one thing that um, our listeners are going to be really interested um, by is this was your, as we've said, first kind of foray into radio documentary journalism. You'd spent all that year in print and doing a bit of PR stuff as well. Mm -hmm. So can you talk just about how that came about, how you went about getting that commissioned um where the idea came from all that like just how <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely um so I decided that I wanted a bit of a new challenge um and so I had obviously been listening to some amazing uh, podcasts and radio work uh and also the tv so for broadcast uh, because I'm a polymath and just fascinated by everything and slightly overambitious, arguably. Um, I want to do both TV and radio. Uh, so the radio thing, I've at least got a foot in the door here with uh, Typical and it's amazing um, winning this award from you guys. Um, how it came about was, uh, well, I guess I was kind of lucky. I was going to make it happen anyway, because I just am one of those people that will find out how to make it work and make it happen. Um, but I have a regular pub meeting <laughs> with other freelancers. Um, and one of them is Catherine Carr, who is an amazing radio producer. Catherine very kindly put me in touch with an independent production company that she's worked with for a number of years, which is Loftus Media. Um, but it really was, you know, this wasn't great. Now, I've, you know, uh, she makes a call and suddenly I get a commission. It, it definitely wasn't that. Um, she gave me an email, made the email introduction. I then had a phone call with um, the owner of Loftus, where I lent very heavily on obviously my print background, um, said the type of stuff that I was interested in. They do quite a lot of, I would say, like lifestyle and music. And that really isn't my background. My background is much more business and financial journalism. Um, and so in a way, that wasn't a downside. It was, OK, cool. What can you bring? Bring us some ideas. Um, I brought them one idea that was not uh, the typical show that um, came to pass, uh, which they took to a Radio 4 commissioner. They talked to different people, kind of you know, casual coffee conversations. Um, and for some reason or another, that idea couldn't go ahead. 
but uh, they said, we do really, really like it. You're onto something. What else have you got? Um, and so that was typical. And that was the very beginning stages of getting commissioned, um, which actually looks a lot similar to any print. So if you're a print journalist listening to this, where you come up with your idea, you do a bit of research, you ask all the questions around, you know, why now? Why me? How am I going to do it? Who do I need to speak to? You sort of make it stack up. Um, and then you write a, a pithy paragraph or two. And that's literally where I started in terms of what was typical, like this is the idea. Um, and then they ask for a slightly longer version. Uh, and then if you get through the round with, um, in my case, like Radio 4, then they'll ask for an even longer version, which is two pages maximum, one to two pages. Um, so I felt very comfortable all the way up to there because that's that's the same as print. So I was thinking, well, this is great. Um, and then, of course, once it gets commissioned, I was straight away into, oh, my God, I don't know what the terms, what the words are in the contract in terms of like, OK, so what's my role? What does that actually mean in an operational sense? Uh, what technical skills am I meant to have? Do I need them? And all those sorts of things. So it got kind of intimidating from the moment I got the commission, I guess. So my understanding with broadcasts, particularly documentaries, is things like the BBC have pitching rounds. Yes. Once yes. or twice a year. So you you managed to kind of <clears throat> time that right. Oh, no, not at all. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're right in that they have these commissioning rounds, which happen quite rarely so I think it, you're right you know twice a year spring and um uh sort of towards winter like September October um but I'd pitched it then they said yes we're going to develop it and they have these kind of casual coffee meetings with the commissioners that are before that that's like the pre stuff the pre-drinks um to see does this sound like something you might potentially be interested in or not and then they get feedback which is what goes into honing that uh, brief document that then gets submitted for the commissioning round. Right. Um, so then when we got through the first round of commissioning, I have to say all of this takes like an inordinate amount of time. I know we had COVID during it, so I can't tell how um, pun intended typical my experience of this has been. Um, but I think it easily took like six months, maybe longer before we heard it through to the next round in the commissioning cycle so not yet commissioned but still interested even um so this was that's totally different to print where I'm much more mm. used to you send an email you find out within a week or two maximum usually yes you've got a commission on it's not going to work yeah and do you, and do you have to um put in a bid through a production company rather than yes. as an individual Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I should have said that. I'm so pleased that you um, raised that, Lily, because uh, I think that's, you know, you hear a lot. If you go to any um, like women in journalism kind of webinars about broadcast journalism, how to break in, it's all about how they want ideas from freelancers. But the structure um, of the thing means that that's almost impossible because you have to have an independent production company. So in a way, you're pitching um, multiple times before you get to the pitch that might be a yes or a no for it actually happening. Um, and I found the same to be the case for TV as well, because I'm a freelancer. I'm pitching to production companies to even respond to me <laughs> and be interested in me, the freelancer, then 
my idea that I'm bringing to them, then keep me involved for that idea. <laughs> um, and then you might get taken to a commissioner. So that's you're right. There's several hurdles before you uh, before you get to that. OK, fantastic. I mean, let's talk about that idea, because I think all of our judges were unanimous in saying that this was such an unusual and a unique idea. So mm -hmm. can you talk us through and, you know, not everyone's going to have heard the documentary, so explain in your words what it is as well. But talk us through the idea and how that evolved. Like, how different was the final product from what you'd envisaged um, when you were pitching those uh, independent production companies? Yeah, so um, I think you gave a very good uh, sort of pithy roundup of what typical is, which you can find on BBC Sounds and, and listen for yourself, really, um, which is about the untold stories hiding in everyday statistics. Um, it was also very much about our assumptions that are based on those, and that led it to be effectively a show about statistics uh, where we give prominence to the mode. So the mode, without getting <laughs> super technical, don't turn off just now. Um, the mode is the most commonly occurring. So, um, you know, what, what happens for most people? So say in like household income, uh, we think mostly about the average as a mean the one that you've learned about at school, and that's say 37,000 pounds. So you're like, oh, okay. But if we think average means typical, oh, that's what most people have is 37,000 pound household income. There's a 14,000 pounds difference between that and the mode. So we're wrong. We're making an assumption about the stats, but we're kind of misunderstanding. Um, but in my description of it there, it makes it sound much drier than I think the actual show is. And that was because it was really important to me that we try and personify uh, the data, I suppose. Um, so to answer the question about where the idea came from, I actually started not with the stats. So it ends up being described as a stats documentary, but I actually started with looking into a story about all the DNA data that we have, you know, and like um, self-testing kits and that sort of stuff and like health data that we're collecting, Fitbit data, um, just looking into it and, and then thinking, how can I pair that with all the discussion around identity politics? Um, and then I was reminded of a TV show, which I can't find, I have subsequently looked for, that was a really brilliant I think more than 10 years ago, uh, where they took people who had a very strong English identity. I mean, so strong sort of national fronts level, I feel English. Uh, so basically taking racist people, uh, doing DNA tests and then showing to them that they're not as quote unquote English, you know, <laughs> as they think they are. Um, and so I was thinking, huh, how could we use all of the data that we've got um, and do something similar? So that was my starting point, which is obviously quite different. But if you listen to the show Typical, you could see how that's um, sort of evolved to become this uh, story about what do most people experience. But it's slightly less personified. I almost wanted to find the typical Scottish person, the typical immigrant, the typical Londoner, you know, whatever. Um, and then see who they are and get to know them. And that obviously didn't come to pass. But I mean, it must have been a very different process. If you're so used to working in print, or I guess you're a lot more, you're working independently, aren't you? And yes, mm. once you've written it, it may go through a process and you, you might be talking to sub-editors and photo desks. But how did that work for this then? If you were doing it through this independent production company, how much did you do and how much was it kind of a team effort? 
Yeah. Um, so they, as soon as it looked like the idea had legs, um, I got paired with an executive producer. Um, so then he, re his role and any executive producer, really, their role is to sort of interrogate the idea and then um, shape the story. Because obviously there's loads of directions we could have taken this in and loads of ways of telling that story. Um, and what I didn't have, of course, was that deep experience of what it's like to tell a story, a sto sorry, a story with audio. Um, and so that's where the exec producer would say, that's great that you would usually use charts or, or um, graphs to uh, emphasize this point. How can we do that when we're effectively whispering into our audience's ear like it's so much more intimate um and how can we bring home to them the story of sort of personifying things so uh one idea I don't know I think it was probably a team a team decision that we spoke to a Tesco delivery driver was was part of this and even realizing his voice like his accent where he's from uh sort of working class you don't hear on Radio 4 very often. Um, and I had really taken that for granted. But to, so to go back to your original question about how much of it is a, a team effort, um, there's the executive producer involved. Then there's a producer who literally holds the microphone, makes sure the technical stuff is good. Um, you don't have a script when you go out to interview, but thinks, oh, uh, we're talking to Tommy from Tesco and he's loading up a van maybe you could rummage through the actual stuff and, our, and our, you know that he's delivering and we'll talk about how he makes assumptions about people so those ideas came from other people that were really crucial to making the show a success yeah that's really interesting and the fact that you you know you do those things I guess on the spot you know you kind of as things come up you kind of have yes. to think that's a great opportunity and they're I guess they're thinking as well about the sounds yes exactly yeah, yeah. And sort of bringing it alive so that a listener can visualize what's happening. Um, yeah. And we, we really didn't want it to be, um, you know, great, here's an interesting fact. Boom, here's another one. Uh, here's a sound bite. Here's another interesting fact. Thanks and goodbye. <laughs> um, I don't think it would have had the impact that it has had if we'd done that. Yeah, I find it really inspiring that you kind of just were open to learning about the, all these things as you went into the process, because I kind of, my tendency is to say yes to things and then figure out later how I'm going to get those skills or work out how to how to do it. I don't think mm -hmm. we should be kind of scared of trying new things. But from that process, are there particular things that you've learned that you would then kind of apply another time that you did this or advise other people kind of embarking on a similar project that, oh, you need yeah. to know this. This is the really key. Yes, I think actually tying into your point, Emma, is about, you know, saying yes and being open to learning stuff. So when the contract came through and we were divvying up, so basically how it works, once you're commissioned, um, the commissioner says, here's X amount of money to the production company. That's your budget. You have, there's no more money. That is what it's going to be. And you need to make a show for that money. And so then um, I was they were very open Loftus that we all sat down knew how much money it was and sort of divvied up the budget um so a piece of advice would be that 
I said yes to things because I would get paid for them. <laughs> so she said, do you want to do the research? And I thought, well, I've already done an absolute ton of research to even get us to this stage. So yes, I 100% want to do that. Uh, would you want to present it? You know, we could have got a different presenter in and that this was my idea and that I worked behind the scenes and I learned loads and then it was fronted by someone else. Um, but uh, I've got a strong enough ego. Uh, but you know, in saying yes, I got paid a presenter fee. Um, in saying yes to, I can't remember there was research and presenter. Oh, writing the script, I got paid for that. So anything that you could, you think yes, I have a transferable skill. Um, say yes to, and even push the envelope. I mean, I to be honest, I tried for producer and said, well, it's my idea. Why don't I get a producer credit? And I'd like more money. Um, and they said, that's great. If we don't hire a producer, can you bring your own microphone and record stuff to a Radio 4 standard and have XYZ skills? And to which point I had to hold my hands up and say, yeah, no, I think we probably do need a producer. Um, so that's definitely a piece of advice. Take all of the jobs that you can, especially if it's your idea that's got you there. Yeah. And and did you find in terms of like the rates of pay, how was that comparable to print? Oh, I have to be so careful in answering this. <laughs> <laughs> that's what um, people want to know, though, isn't it? I know. I know. The reality is that uh, I think the radio in particular, I've heard that podcasts are better, um, but I was pretty shocked at the radio pay. Uh, brackets and of course because you're paid as a freelancer per day they would have to out of their budget say well how many days for research and I think well I mean I've done a bunch of interviews and spent six months building up to this point so I almost want to get paid for that time but uh, it doesn't quite work like that it's like well we've already got all of that so what additional research would we need for the show and you get paid on the number of days they think it will take you to do that research. So I think I had like three days, two or three days pay um, at not very much money. Um, so it's a bit of a loss maker, if I'm honest, that in fact, typical is probably one of my lower paid jobs. But that said, it was an incredible learning experience. I do want to do more of it because I just enjoyed it so much. And I think it's another you know, as you were saying, string to your bow of, uh, you know, how can I tell a story? How can I take my journalism in a, a different direction? And there might be some stories that suit radio and audio better than in print. And there might be some stories that I want to take to TV. Yeah, and it's it leads me really nicely onto my next question, because this week we've been talking a lot about kind of not having all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. So mm. if you've got kind of newsrooms closing or publications closing down what impact does that have on freelancers and we've always said you kind of have to use your skills in the widest possible way and never rely on any one client yeah yeah, um, yeah. so you've had a really portfolio career you've um you co-founded a comms agency at one <laughs> yes. point so could you just talk us through kind of how you've made those decisions over time and um kind of what you what maybe what you want out of your career has changed yeah, definitely. So um, at the beginning, I just thought journalism was the coolest thing. And I, I to be honest, I still do. <laughs> um, so I really wanted to I went into journalism really wanting to be uh, an investigative journalist. 
um, you know, that kind of Pulitzer winning, doing cool stuff, digging up the dirt, making my stamp on history, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, at the Sunday Times, I was really fortunate to uh, be sort of seconded for a little period of time to their insights team, which does investigations. Um, and then there was a realization of just the high level of drudgery involved in doing that. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'm not sure this really is for me. Um, so then I stayed at Sunday Times. I went to local papers. I kind of did it the other way around, I guess, than a lot of people. And then I went to a trade title. Um, and for, for going to trade, I became a financial journalist, which is hilarious that I'm a financial journalist and now sort of won awards for a stats-based documentary when I left school at 16 and, um, you know, got a D in math. And I wouldn't say that I'm particularly brilliant at mental arithmetic, but I love it. I love a concept. Um, so sort of all the way through that, as I was saying earlier, I wanted the security of a staff job or a contract. Um, but I'm just insatiably curious and so always freelanced. Um, and for some, for a good portion of my career on staff, the pay I think is still so low that you sort of need, or I felt I needed to freelance alongside it anyway. So doing full-time work plus freelancing at the weekends, and then my freelance work would pay for holidays or nice to haves. Um, and then uh, a big change came where I was um, editor and FT title um investment advisor had a team of 10 journalists um working with me um and that was amazing but i just knew it wasn't very su sustainable uh for me and to maintain my relationship basically um where i was going out for really long you know morning meetings all the way through to coming home past midnight mostly pissed uh, and calling it work was <laughs> not very conducive to like, I'd like a happy married life <laughs> and have friends and hobbies. Um, so I knew something had to change. And that was, God, I think that was 2016. So I just took a year out, went and lived in the Canadian mountains um, and decided, right, what am I going to do? Am I going to stay with journalism, which I love, but I also want to make money. Oh, I don't know what to do. Um, and so ended up co-founding with my wife, uh, our Marcoms agency, Luminescence, uh, which we run together for just over 10 years. Um, and like I said, freelanced alongside that because I always wanted a foot in journalism um, whilst working with corporate clients that obviously pays much more highly to do kind of quote unquote thought leadership or what's become content marketing stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting that you've kind of been able to straddle both those worlds um and kind of you know balance the finances and, mm -hmm. and your relationship and your sort of passion for journalism and I think that's what we all find isn't it, as freelancers that we we end up in this position where we've got fingers and lots of pies and lots yeah. of transitional skills I mean you you've mentioned um about wanting to work in tv is there anything you can tell us about what you've got coming up there yeah so I've taken uh, I've taken the same approach to TV, so I have no idea whether this is like the right approach or the best approach that could be done. Um, but the approach is that I research an idea in the same way that I would for any print piece. And I just start with the idea and then think, where would its best home be? Like, could this be much more visual? Could this be much more audio? Is this a print story? Um, and I have had some success with the TV stuff, which I did um, alongside radio. 
I so maybe foolishly sort of thought the same independent production companies would do both. And it turns out that is wrong. <laughs> so I just doubled the work for myself. Um, so yes, I successfully pitched some stuff to independent production companies who work in TV docs. Uh, the additional thing that I did there was made sure that I had access so that I couldn't be cut out of the deal, basically. Um, and I had uh, a really good documentary, uh, like ObDoc, observational doc type series with good access. Um, and it went to commissioners uh, at, I think it was Amazon and uh, Channel 4 and BBC. Um, BBC said no. Channel 4 wanted it to be more salacious, um, a story than we were comfortable with. Um, and there was another reason why the Amazon thing couldn't happen. So it sort of just fell away. So, yeah, I'm still pursuing that. In fact, I'm developing a pitch at the moment that I have in mind for Panorama. Um, but if it doesn't work for TV, then it will probably end up being a print piece. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of where I am at the moment but I have steady money coming from a three day a week contract with a PR agency um, because I just didn't want to have to go and get the clients myself. I just wanted steady, know where I am uh, kind of money to enable me to feel a bit more bold in the stuff that I do with broadcast. Yeah. I mean, one thing that really struck me there when you were speaking is it sounds like you need quite a lot of patience because these processes just take such a long time. And actually I hope I've not kind of, spoil the question that I'm gonna ask now because to round up we're gonna ask all our awards winners the same three questions okay Ooh, so this is I'm nervous I'm nervous <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite thing about freelancing what thing do you find most frustrating about freelancing and what is your top freelancing tip so go <laughs> oh so wait what was the first one my favorite, your favorite thing. thing uh the freedom uh, freedom to pursue things that just because I find them interesting <laughs> and then see whether they might also be interesting to others uh, what's the second one a frustrating thing frustrating, frustrating thing uh, is probably where I am a little bit now which is that typical was really well received uh, it was like finalist for uh, the Wincott Awards for data journalism of the year I was the only freelancer on um, that category uh, you know, it went really well. Everyone was under the impression it might get picked up for a series and then nothing. And then we put in another pitch that was a bit to do with this, but to do with the strikes versus the, you know, strikers versus the government and nothing. Um, I've currently got something out with Audible um, for a different series. And it's just the kind of waiting. I find that so frustrating that you're like, it's a good idea, guys. <laughs> but knowing that on the other side of the fence they've got a finite budget and there's probably a ton of really great ideas vying for that money um which maybe seamlessly leads into the tip is to not take it personally it doesn't mean your idea was uh crap it doesn't mean that you are not a good journalist it does you know all of that stuff it's so hard to keep that perspective when you get so many rejections um but it's to like, what can you learn from it and keep going? So I think you really need that grit and tenacity um, to, to keep going and to pursue the stuff that you know is a good story and that you can deliver. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really excellent advice that can just be applied to kind of pitching or any kind of work that you're doing is that there are so many things outside your control. 
you can yeah. only control what you can control but mm. you know there are so many other factors that feed into that editorial decision making yeah. that you can that yeah it's just kind of having lots of ideas moving on and yeah. just not taking it personally I think that's a great tip Okay, so time to bring this episode to a close. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us, Anna. Congratulations again on Thank your you. well-deserved win. Everybody, and- quick, go and listen to Typical now. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much for even having these awards, because I really do think that freelancers are kind of the backbone of journalism and just really the unsung heroes. So thank you for highlighting all the excellent work that freelancers are doing. Oh, it's our pleasure. It was it was such a, a nice experience to be able to do it. And I'm sure we'll be back again next year. Um, it's interesting as well that you were saying about typical being a series, because when I first read um, your sort of application for it, I just assumed it was a series because it just sounded no. like a series. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we were trying to push it in that direction. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if anyone wants to commission a series that is very much like that, I'm here. Yeah, definitely. They should do. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast and you want to hear some more bonus episodes, then remember you can subscribe to the premium version of our newsletter, which is on Substack. Yeah, so for just £3.33 a month, tax deductible, obviously, uh, you get bonus episodes, resource lists, uh, pitching examples. So yeah, find out more, head over to Substack, search for freelancing for journalists, or we'll also have a link in the show notes of this podcast. Yeah. And if you want to come and connect with more freelancers, join our Freelancing for Journalists Facebook group. And you can also now go and see our new and improved website that we have finally got round to finishing, which is freelancingforjournalists.com. Yes, finally. Please do go and visit. We had no time to do this and we had to do it anyway. Um, you can follow us on social media on Twitter we're at Freelancing4 and I'm at Emma Journo. I'm at Lily Cantor and also a huge thank you to our Freelance Journalism Award sponsors so they were not only women in journalism but also Lightbulb 5WH journalism.co.uk The Media Mentor The NUJ and News Associates Yes, thank you to all of them without them we wouldn't have been able to do the awards And uh, we'll be back uh, next episode with another award winner. So bye for now. Bye.